Let's turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 5, please. As you're uh, turning there, I want you to flash back to 1961. Many of you were alive. I was not. See an 11-year-old African-American boy in Detroit failing high school. Uh, His single mother, who had but a third grade education, uh, is distressed about her son's academic failures and decides to do something about it. She acquires this young man and his older brother and best friend Curtis to learn the multiplication tables while she's away. And unbeknownst to them, she checks into a mental institution to battle depression. When she returns, she realizes her sons are watching way too much TV and decides to restrict them to two shows a week. It requires them to read two books a week and write book reports, which they're very frustrated about, but then soon become hooked on a television quiz show. She hides from them the fact that she can't even read the reports that they're writing. The two boys soon begin to love reading and learn many things in the world of books, and so that within one year, one of the boys goes from the bottom of his class to the top. But that boy has a terrible temper, which reaches a breaking point in high school when he nearly kills his brother. And fortunately for his friend and himself, He draws a knife uh, against his brother, and and, uh, that knife hits his friend's belt buckle and breaks. He's shocked at the rage that's within him, and he runs home and he cries out to God in prayer for his temper, and that changes his life. um, His mother uh, encourages him to read the Proverbs on anger, and and that has an important part in his life. He's a very good student, and after hard work and strong determination, he receives a scholarship to Yale, where he meets his wife, who supports him in his struggles to get through Yale. He studies neurosurgery and is accepted as a resident at John Hopkins Hospital, uh, where he is faced with a dilemma that uh, could end his career. Uh, He needs to operate in a dying man. He does not have permission, does not have supervision. But if he doesn't operate, that man will die. He takes the risk and he saves the man's life. In 1985, his mother joins his family. His wife is rushed to the hospital where she miscarries their twins. He stays with her all night as a doctor until the next morning. And he does a rare procedure called a hemispherectomy in which he removes half the brain of a four-year-old who had been convulsing a hundred times each day. And it's there that he launches, uh, and they realize the value in this man's uh, surgery skills, and um, he begins um, uh, a, 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 a specialty in a surgery of separating conjoined twins. He separates twins conjoined at the head, which apparently had never really been done before. He saves two young lives of two twins who are joined at the head. And uh, he becomes one of the best known surgeons in our country. His name, as you probably might know, is Dr. Ted Carson. Um, but he is uh, known for um, his gifted hands. This is the name of a movie and a book that's been written about him. And um, uh, he has incredible surgical skills. 
Uh, Donald Trump said he was just an okay surgeon, uh, but uh, uh, he's, a, he's an amazing surgeon. And um, in Micah chapter 5, we have uh, surgery that needs to be done to the remnant of Israel. And it is done by a loving God. So the title of this message this morning is Loving Surgery. And I don't mean that you love surgery. I mean that surgery done in love. In Micah chapter 5, this millennial passage, Micah has talked about the Messiah in verse 2 specifically and what he will do. In verse 4 and 5, when we looked at those verses last week, we're going to pick up in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. This is the 11th message in this, um, uh, this miniature Isaiah, book of Isaiah, so to speak. It's kind of a, a, a shrunken, distilled um, uh, book of Isaiah in seven chapters. And uh, we're going to bring up the topic here of a remnant, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Israel. God had, uh, uh, much of Israel had fallen away in apostasy, but there, will, there was always a remnant. God reminded Elijah that comes up again in Romans chapter uh, 11. And there was a remnant uh, that will receive God's grace. And in Micah chapter 5, and verse 6, it says, And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof, Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. And notice this, verse 7 is our focus here. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as a showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man nor waiteth for the sons of men. First of all, this morning, as we look at this remnant, and there's a notes on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along here, we see a remnant refreshed, a remnant refreshed, a remnant of Israel, part of Israel that experienced God's grace, Jesus will refresh this remnant. Verse 7 is talking about how the Messiah is going to destroy Israel's enemies. And the remnant of believing Israelites will be refreshed. They'll be, they'll, they'll be like dews and showers, is the word that's used here. As the showers upon the grass. As the dew from the Lord. So this remnant left in Israel are going to take their place among the nations. And they're going to be like dew sent by the Lord. Now, we, we, we can do a lot of things to collect water. Uh, We can go down to the lake and collect water. We can dig wells and collect water that's stored uh, in the ground. Um, We can have rain barrels and collect rain that falls. But we can't really do anything to make water fall. I mean, there's situations in certain environments where they say you can seed clouds and and cause uh, something that was going to happen anyway, uh, rain. But the reality is that uh, uh, there is a heavenly origin to rain. It's not something that you and I can control. Sure, we can store and collect it. We can't control it. So this morning, I want you to see that this remnant that Jesus will refresh has a heavenly origin. As a heavenly origin. God will make something happen. They'll be like the dew, notice what the words say, sent by the Lord. Sent by the Lord. So there's a heavenly origin. But there's also a healthy outpouring. When God blesses, his people. He blesses them to be a blessing to others. Anything that God's given you, physical or spiritual, He has not given you to hoard to yourself. He's given you to bless other people with. 
And uh, notice that it says there in Micah chapter 7, The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as the dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. So, uh, Israel, uh, this remnant, will be like a droplets that Jesus sends in His grace. And He sends this rain to fertilize the earth. To, to bring uh, this, this heavenly origin here of, of God sending His people Israel, this remnant Israel, and His, and his grace uh, as dew from the Lord, as showers upon the grass, is, is to make something grow. Grow here. So it's for a healthy outpouring. But secondly, I'd like you to notice here that there is a re- this remnant will be reigning. Jesus will cause this remnant to reign. Look what verse 8 says. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. What he wants you to picture here is um, a lion, uh, we can put it in our terms, imagine that a lion gets loose um, in, in, in a, uh, in, let's say, the zoo, and he's able to get into all the animals' cages that he certainly has preferences for. And he's just tearing things apart. He's unstoppable. This remnant that's left in Israel, they're going to take their place among the nations. The remnant's going to be like a lion, like a ferocious lion. They're going to be domineering over other animals. Israel will be dominant and powerful over the other nations of the world. And Israel, at this point in our in our world's history, many times is looked upon as a weak nation. And uh, the, the United Nations and other organizations and the countries of the world are trying to force Israel to do their will. The reality is, in this time, this time of the remnant, that Israel will be a military force. Notice this remnant will be reigning in a driving force. They'll be like a lion among the animals of the forest. They're going to be like a strong young lion among the flocks of sheep and goats. They're going to be pouncing. They're going to be tearing as they go. Um, and there's not going to be any, any, uh, anyone to, to deliver the, the nations from their driving force. Not only a driving force will they be reigning, they'll be reigning in a dominating fashion. In a dominating fashion. They're going to stand up to their foes. And none can deliver, the scripture says. Their enemies will be wiped out. Their enemies will be wiped out. There's a remnant that is refreshed. There's a remnant that will be reigning. Jesus will cause all of this to happen. The tables will be turned. And thirdly, I want you to see this morning, there is a remnant that will be refined. A remnant be refined. Jesus will purify. Jesus will purge this remnant. The remnant refined. Look in, look in verse uh, 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee. He's talking to this remnant. I'll cut off your horses, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all the strongholds. First of all, this remnant will be refined by the Messiah dislodging crutches. Dislodging crutches. They would depend on their horses. They would depend on their chariots. They would depend on their fortified cities. 
that's what they were they were hoping would would uh, that's what they were trusting in. That's what they were relying on. He's going to purge Israel of her reliance on military power in that day. He will destroy the horses, the chariots in which she trusted, the cities that they built strongholds in. They're going to be demolished, God says, and I'm going to be your protector. You know, we have things that we depend on. If we really examine our hearts and lives, there are things that we tend to trust in. And God's job is to wean us off of those things. Um, let me just give you a big picture uh, of, what, of, of one of the things that uh, Christianity has depended on. We have, for many years, depended on Bible colleges and seminaries, etc., um, uh, for for training uh, people, for training leaders, uh, biblical leaders, and you know what? There might be a day where that is is we're weaned off of that. As persecution increases, some of the institutions that we've come to depend on, uh, we're going to have to go back to the New Testament church and do what Paul did in training leaders. Um, uh, sometimes we depend uh, and we rely on programs to do a certain job. Nothing wrong with programs. Nothing wrong with Bible college and seminaries. I went to them. But they are not to where we're supposed to put our reliance. Anything that has become something that we rely on apart from God has become a crutch. And God is going to wean them off He's going to wean them off. He's going to dislodge their crutches. He was going to take away their, their horses. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. The Bible says, we will remember the name of the Lord. Because the name of the Lord is a strong power. You run into it, you're safe. Um, I wonder what things in your lives uh, you've been trusting in. Is God going to have to get in there and dislodge that? Is it... What is your security? What is your hope? This remnant is going to be purified. They're going to be refined. You see, God is right now in the process of making us like Christ. Um, how many of you make maple syrup? You tap trees and you make maple syrup. Nobody? <laughs> Some of you do. Um, but think about the process of, of refining maple syrup. You know, you tap the bucket, you put the bucket under the taps there, or you, or you um, got it hooked up the tubes, and, and out drips the sap, which is which is which is thin and clear, isn't it? It's like water. They say on a good day, 50 trees will yield about 30 to 40 gallons of sap. But if you were to taste it, you'd only have a hint of sweetness, right? So what do you have to do? Well, as these buckets fill, then they empty, you empty them into large bins, uh, sit over an open fire, or wherever you do it, and that sap comes to a slow boil. And as it boils, that water content evaporates. Steam, it's reduced. And those sugars become more and more concentrated. You want your sap, your, your, the, the sap there, you want it to turn in maple syrup that is dark. That's the premium stuff. Its water contents reduced, its sugars are concentrated, and, and after a while there's developed a rich flavor and a, and, a, and a brown color. And even then it has to be strained, doesn't it? Remove impurities, it's got to be uh, reheated again, and then they've got to bottle it and then grate it for, for quality. And in the end, they say those 30 to 40 gallons are reduced to one gallon. 
of pure, delicious maple syrup. Far better than Aunt Jemima's, right? Uh, there in the grocery store, the passes for syrup in the grocery store. And so it is when we come to faith in Christ, where we start like raw, unfinished sap. Everything that God intends for us to be is in there, right? But it's got to be purified. Uh, we could have been tossed aside as worthless, but God knows what He can make of us. He saw us, He finds us, and His hands are skillful, and they can transform us into something precious, sweet, and useful. And that's what God was going to do to this remnant. He had to, he had to refine them. He had to purify them. And, and that painful refining process was going to bring forth a purity, a genuineness that could easily be distinguished from cheap imitations. But he wasn't just going to uh, um, uh, dislodge the crutches that they were depending on, that they shouldn't have put their trust in. He was also going to dethrone the corruptions that were allowed in their midst. Look at what it says in verse 12. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thy hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt have no more, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands, and I will pluck up thy groves, those are places of worship of false idols, out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. He's going to dethrone corruption. He's going to put an end to witchcraft. There's not going to be uh, fortune tellers. He's going to destroy their idols, their sacred pillars, so that they would never again worship the work of their own hands. He's going to abolish their idol shrines, destroy their pagan cities. What's he going to do? He's going to destroy false worship from within Israel. There are enemies that were outside of Israel that were dangerous, but the Messiah is going to purge a nation of every trace of the things that they were allowing in their midst, the corruption in their midst, which were enemies within. This word witchcraft here, literally sorceries, uh, um, uh, seeking information from demonic sources, um, casting spells. Uh, it has to do with, um, with trusting their futures to superstition. Like astrology. You know, there's a lot of things that we can get sucked into as believers. If we think we can influence our future by good luck, by having this with us, um, by doing this or this certain routine, that'll influence my future. That's just a, 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 another way of, 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 um, of, of soothsaying. That's the idea here. And why was that so uh, such such a, such a thing that God abhorred? Because again, they were not putting their trust in God. They were putting their trust in this superstition or this or that, or if I carry my lucky whatever with me. These carved images that he talks about here—they were idols of foreign foreign gods. These um, these standing images—they were sacred stones or pillars. Um, some of them were called Asherah poles, and they were objects used in worshiping male and female. Canaanite uh, idols. Um, many times uh, sexual rights were involved in those. He's going to dethrone corruption. But notice that phrase there. You will never again worship the work of your own hands. He said, well, I don't you know, sit there and carve out idols and put them on my fireplace mantle and give rice to them or pray to them. But 
we do worship our accomplishments many times, don't we? Um, maybe you didn't do it with your physical hands, but you it's easy to take pride in what we've accomplished, isn't it? The temptation to worship the work of our own hands is as real today as it was in the time of the prophet. One writer writes, Our forms of idolatry may be more sophisticated than those that Micah encountered, but they are basically the same. We trust in our own skill and ingenuity to lead us through problems. We feel more secure trusting the works of our own hands rather than trusting God supremely. And that is what idolatry is all about. You know, sin is the breaking of God's law. And what are the greatest commandments of God's law? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, with our strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. You remember the commandments that God gives in the Ten Commandments, the, the first uh, four there, talking about a relationship with God that shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make any graven image. He's talking here about idols. And he is going to dethrone corruption. Because God wants a pure product. There's a, there's a moth called the emperor moth. And it's shaped like a flask in shape. So, so um, uh, when, it, when it's in its cocoon, it's shaped like a flask. And so it's very narrow at the top of the cocoon, wide at the bottom. And if it's going to develop into a perfect insect, it has to force its way through the very narrow neck of that cocoon in hours of intense struggle. And entomologists uh, explain that this pressure that they are um, subjected to with a, with, a, with a narrow part of the top of that cocoon is, is um, the natural way of forcing a life-giving substance in what will become wings. It's a caterpillar and then turn into a, a moth. And um, uh, if you would take small scissors and snip the threads that are at the top of that narrow part of the cocoon, that soon-to-be moth would emerge without pain and without much effort. But you know what? That creature would never develop wings. Would never develop wings. It would simply crawl on the ground instead of flying through the air on the rainbow wings of an emperor moth. Some of you might know this, that um, the struggles of childbirth, that squeezing, those muscles squeezing that child as it's going to enter this world, the birth canal, are, are a way of, of, of forcing the liquids out of that out of that newborn's lungs. And, and so it is. Uh, sorrow, suffering, trials, tribulations, the things that God wishes to purge from us are designed to make us grow in Christ-likeness. And that refining and that development, this morning for Sunday School, we looked at the book of Job as one of the books of poetry. There's, that was a slow time in Job's life. I bet if you talk to Job, say, Job, didn't those days just pass by like that? Job wouldn't say, yes, No. Job, Job would, would probably thought there would be no end in sight. But the refining and del- de- uh, de- developing process was slow. But through grace, <coughs> grace shines brightest in the winter, doesn't it? There's that triumphant emerging of the, of the butterfly. I wonder this morning, as we look at the text here, and uh, we see the things that God was going to do to this remnant of Israel. 
He was going to remove the, the corruption that they had dabbled with, the, 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 the sins that they were uh, un, uh, dabbling in impurity with. Have you looked at your own life and said, Lord, what is it that is impure in me? David said, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any, any wicked way in me. The things that the Israelites were depending on, and he had to wean them off. The horses, the chariots, their military strength, their cities. That's what they had built their pride. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, God had told the kings of Israel uh, not to find their glory in horses. When you read 1 Kings chapter 11, it starts to list off how many horses Solomon had. And the kingdom begins to spiral downward. What are we building our securities in? What are we hoping will, will be the foundation of our lives and find out that, that was just sand when the winds came and the storms blew? And in Jesus' two parables there, where he talks about the houses built, a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand, they had two different foundations, but they had one thing in common. They both encountered storms. They both encountered storms. Two different foundations, one thing in common, the storm, and two different results. One stands firm because it's built on something that lasts, and one falls flat. God's refining process is a way to see where our hearts really are. I wonder this morning... Where is your heart? And how do you see that refining process? Do you see God's plan in all that? Or do you see it as something that is just the difficulties of life? Or do you see the story that God is weaving through this? 